This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where we are two things each and every week. What are those two things? One, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. Today, our very special guest is the top economic advisor within the White House to the President of the United States. His name is Larry Kudlow. He comes to us from the White House or the White House complex. Larry, good afternoon. Thank you, Major. Thanks for having me. The country is, uh, to one degree or another, somewhat transfixed by the revelations in the Woodward book. What's your reaction? Well, I have not read the Woodward book. I've read reports. I've heard the president. Look, I'll read you a presidential tweet because that's the only thing I can say. Bob Wood, this is President Trump speaking on a tweet, uh, I guess this morning. Bob Woodward had my quotes for many months. If he thought they were so bad or dangerous, why didn't he immediately report them in an effort to save lives? Didn't he have an obligation to do so? Well, no, because he knew they were good and proper answers, calm, no panic. So to the extent, again, I have not read uh, Mr. Woodward's book, but I understand what the president is saying. And I, I guess the only thing I can add to that, as a member of the virus task force, uh, Vice President Pence's task force, I can tell you that the president's public posture where he wanted calm, not panic, um, in no way reflected or slowed the internal process of building uh, an across-the-board infrastructure to combat the virus. In no way. There was no uh, tardiness or slowing uh, or this or that. Uh, That process went on, uh, and the president knew all about it. And I frankly think putting up that kind of infrastructure in a couple of months is a remarkable achievement. Uh, and we are winning the battle against the virus. But his public comments uh, did not interfere with any of the internal uh, activities and discussions. Was there a conversation, Larry, within the task force about the public is hearing one thing from the president because that's his message and we're hearing something different? I, I don't recall it. I don't recall it. Now, I joined the task force, I think, Secretary Mnuchin and I joined the task force perhaps, um, I'm going to say, two weeks after it was formed. 
so I can't account for every single meeting. But um, by mid-March, either the first or second week of March, my memory doesn't serve me on this, uh, we were there, we were there constantly. Um, and my answer is uh, no, there was no discussion of that. And I know it's not possible to know for sure, but we have talked to so many medical experts who thought then and think now, if there had been a more sober and serious and candid, somewhat depressing assessment of what the virus was, its danger, there could have been a more robust conversation throughout America about mitigation strategies. We could have gotten over our reluctance to impose them or to voluntarily submit to them earlier, and that could have put us better off economically and better off from a health perspective. The president clearly, in his own words, said he wanted to be a cheerleader. That's not my words. Those are his words. And he didn't want to invoke any kind of panic or undue concern. Had he done that, might we be better off? Might we be farther ahead economically and farther ahead in addressing the virus because we would have, as a nation, adapted to behaviors sooner? Well, look, I I think the answer to that is no. And again, I, I come back to my my thought that there was his public view as a leader, which was to try to calm rather than panic, uh, in no way stopped or slowed or interfered with the very rapid buildup of an infrastructure internally uh, from the virus task force and other areas uh, to combat it. There was no interference, no slowdown. So, right. I, and I hear you on that. And I, and, and I would we'll, separate. We'll, 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 I, I understand that. But you're a smart person, Larry. You've been around government a long time. You understand the relationship. You once worked for Ronald Reagan, one of the greatest communicators in the history of American politics. The way a president speaks to the nation matters. It matters in moments of high interest. And we all know February, March, April, maximum interest, maximum attention. And I really want you to sort of help me out here. If you fundamentally believe that there's nothing that the president could have said or done in his public utterances that would have helped the nation behaviorally get closer to where it is now in terms of mask wearing, social distancing, understanding mitigation strategies, go ahead and say that. But it strikes me that listening to every single press conference he had, that he could have said things a little bit more soberly, a little bit more seriously, and change the minds of people months earlier? Well, look, it's a fair question, Major. I'm not sure I can answer it. I mean, I, I think I'll have to leave that to historians and others uh, who know more about the whole subject than I do. What, what I will say, though, is at some point in perhaps late January, early February, extending right through the month of February and even into early March, there was a very strong debate in the country. Some people echoed the point of view you just put forward. Um, other people were skeptical uh, about the virus and its um, potential impact. I mean, there was a lot we had to learn in a very short period of time. Uh, I'm not an expert. I'm certainly not a health scientist. Uh, so those debates will go on there like a historical matter. Um, I, I believe, uh, that in terms of closing borders and travel restrictions, 
and developing incredible processes uh, between government and the private sector to get the necessary equipment together, uh, to develop the guidelines, to develop the uh, whole of government task force uh, that was put together. Uh, and then I might add the economic response. Um, I, I think we did the right thing. I, I won't argue it was perfect, um, but I think we did the right thing and I think we did it pretty well. Um, some people nowadays give us credit, many people do not, I understand that. Uh, it's a political year, but I think we did the best we could and I think it was really quite effective. And um, I think the president led wisely. I think the vice president led wisely. And I will add to that, you know, there was constant cooperation with the governors and the mayors. And also very importantly for this president and his philosophy with the private sector, with the companies that could help us uh, and did. I mean, patriotism was widespread. It was a wonderful thing. So this pandemic was brutally difficult with enormous hardship and heartbreak. Uh, it's not over yet. Um, I think we're on top of it, but we will see. But I'm not going to second guess. I, I'm not the guy major to second guess. Mm -hmm. I, I understand. I don't have I understand. that kind of knowledge. Uh, and you mentioned a second ago that it's still with us. Uh, there were some who interpreted your remarks that were recorded for the Republican National Convention as describing this as essentially over, that it was in our rearview mirror. You no longer believe that? I never said that. All I did, I was chronicling events, I guess, in February and March when the pandemic first surfaced. My job there was to provide a policy message of economic growth and the actions that we were taking and the economic recovery impact, which has been very good. Um, so people were sniping as they always do. There's a lot of ankle biting. You look at that thing, we have, uh, you know, we have the uh, written form. Uh, yes, the months of February and March, and I'll just say April and so forth, were in the past tense because they were in the past. That's all. And then I switched into where we were now, which was an improving economy. Larry Kudlow will be with us for segments two, three, four, and five. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back in a second. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target, or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor, is our very special guest. Uh, Larry, I, I want to get to the stimulus talks, uh, round four, in a second. But I, because you listen to the president, you work with him closely, I want you to – I'm going to give you an open floor here – to talk about the president's way of thinking about things. It's been my observation and my experience, having been around him for nearly five years now, that he has two – 
central pillars of his philosophy on life, which is positivism and strength. And he wants to convey both relentlessly. And he is therefore sometimes either misunderstood or misread by his opponents or people who are trying to absorb what his what he's doing and why. That's not a very sophisticated analysis, I grant you. What do you observe? What do you think distinguishes his approach and uh, maybe came to bear either for the better or for the worse during the pandemic? Well, actually, I, I think you're your depiction is 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 about right. Um, he is an optimist, and he sees the world. You know where there are problems, they can be solved, uh, and he wants to show strength, uh, his own strength as a leader, uh, but also the strength of America. And you know, repeatedly on that one, he would say, "This is a great country, and we will get through this." And uh, I have confidence, he's saying, I have confidence that we will get through this. And by the way, I think those forecasts are turning out to be correct. I, I happen to share his views. As you know, I am an optimist. Um, and where there are problems, I think we can get through them and solve them. Uh, and I, I think he applied that. The only thing I would add, Major, to, to the president's communication, but also his thinking, is he acted uniquely in concert and association with the private sector economy, the free enterprise business part of the economy. He did not want a complete government top-down central plan. Now, some things had to come from government, understand that, but in terms of solutions, um, particularly, we can go to the issue of uh, respirators and ventilators and other equipment and gowns and the production of masks. And then, of course, that led to the, the search uh, for pharmaceuticals. But we had many meetings uh, with uh, top people in these big uh, pharma companies or biotech companies, but we also reached out you know, into the automobile companies. I myself was on sure. the phone constantly. Uh, you know, 3M. I mean, I, I, I could give you a long list. So this was an example of um, government-private partnership, which I think is a unique uh, perspective on um, President Trump's policies and his thinking. So the president said early on the cupboards were bare, did he bear and did the administration bear responsibility for having them be bare, even though pandemic fears and pandemic papers and pandemic predictions had been flowing through Washington for the better part of 15 years? Yeah, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to mislead. I'm, I'm not the guy to ask that, and I'm not the guy to answer that. I just okay. don't know enough. I recall, it's just a small point, but I'll say that the Johns Hopkins, uh, whatever it's called, you know, School of, of um, Public Health, they co-authored a study with somebody in Europe, I believe, that was published a few months ago, it didn't get much attention, but it said in 2019, the study was published at the end of 2019. And they said the United States was the best prepared country for uh, defense against a pandemic. Now, we can all, I, I can find that for you. 
I don't remember whether it was the journal or whoever put that out, but it was the Hopkins School, which is uh, highly regarded. But in terms of the pantry and what was there and not there, and where we were left in 2016 and 2017, uh, before I was in the administration, I can't really speak to that. I just don't know enough about that. Got it. What are we going to do as a nation with the next round of stimulus? Uh, Will there be a next round? What is the administration's bottom line? And when will this be resolved, if ever? Well, good questions, tough questions. Look, one thing I want to say here is we're four months into an economic recovery. Uh, Things today in, let's call it mid-September, are different than they were in the darkest hours of, let's say, late March, when the first uh, CARES Act was passed and Mm -hmm. there had been smaller acts previous to that. Um, Our job is not done, but I would say, whether it's jobs or housing or autos, uh, unemployment, employment, um, we're moving ahead probably to better clip than uh, even optimists thought. So this is very good, very, very good. And I think it has colored the discussion uh, in, in Congress about this. Well, yeah, some Republicans don't believe there's anything necessary. Some don't. Um, today, uh, I think there were 52 or 53 Republican votes uh, for a measure that lost uh, on this. Are you willing to go above that amount, the White House? That amount is roughly a trillion dollars. The Democrats are at 2.2 trillion. Secretary Mnuchin has given some suggestion that the administration might be flexible up to 1.5 trillion. Where are we? Well, of course, the Republican bill today, I believe, was scored at roughly 500 billion. But I'm not here to negotiate out or suggest one or another. What I will say is this. Anything that's passed has to be very well targeted and has to be smart. It's not a time for a three or four trillion dollar across the board massive bill. That time was last winter. Things have changed. Now, there are things that we believe would be helpful. Okay, for example, Uh, an extension of the small business PPP. I think that would be very helpful. That was in the Senate Republican uh, bill. I think additional uh, funds uh, for schools, school openings, uh, school COVID supplies and related matters. Uh, I think we had 105 billion uh, in in that bill. Uh, I think that would be welcome. Uh, The president is still open uh, to um, uh, economic uh, impact assistance in the form of uh, essentially a tax rebate or direct checks from the Treasury, depending on your perspective. He's still open to that. Stimulus uh, checks, in other words. Uh, well, I would call them assistance checks. I don't really regard it as stimulus okay. in an incentive way, but yeah, whatever you want to call it. It puts right. more, it's more liquidity and helps right. get people through. Uh, what, we, about, what about aid to states that have seen their revenues through no fault of their own collapse. Well, I just want to add that we would also like a bill that would codify our assistance to unemployed. I mean, the unemployment rate has come down uh, 8.4% in August. People thought we wouldn't get single digits until early next year. Uh, we've done by executive order, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, $300 plus up over the state levels 
which you know could be uh, $400, and that would get you to 700. That's less than the earlier ones, but very generous and I think um, uh, appropriate. Uh, we wish that would codify. I mean, just put that in a bill for heaven's sakes. So that's another issue. Regarding state and local assistance, Major, look, um, President has always been skeptical of this. First of all, we have already poured hundreds and hundreds of billion dollars into state and local assistance. It's a huge uh, total. Now, right. I think he's president's concerned that badly managed states will use extra federal funds uh, to try to repair or patch up or help interest groups or uh, fix pension funds that have been broken and for decades and decades. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that. I completely agree. Shouldn't do that. I do think, however, uh, because they have been hit, as you noted, on the revenue side, um, he would be willing to provide assistance uh, in, if, it's, if it's COVID related. That's a key point because so much of the bill from the other side had nothing to do with COVID. Spending, rules, this and that. I'm not going to walk through right. it. I don't have time. No, I understand. That was his, you know, that was a big criticism of his. And I think he was spot on. I think a lot of Democrats agreed with right. him on that. But, but to clarify before we go to break, Larry, with guardrails, the administration is conceptually open to state revenue relief. Yes, with COVID-related guardrails in particular, we are. But let's not forget one last thought, maybe next segment. Mm -hmm. The economy is growing. We're, we're going to get at least 20% growth in the current quarter. I've got estimates here from Wall Street and Federal Reserve Banks of 30, 35%. Revenues are improving across the board, federal revenues and state and local revenues. So the story is probably not near as bad as some people paint it. But that said, I like the way you put it. We would want COVID-related guardrails on any assistance to the states, and it's got to be COVID-related. We're not going to have a wish list of whatever the liberal or progressive movement wants. I'm Major Garrett. Larry Kudlow is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hi, I'm Major Garrett. Larry Kudlow is our special guest. I am working from home, as you can clearly see, for those of you on CBSN, also on more than 75 radio stations across our great country and Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, great to have you and all of our early adopters on podcast. Larry Kudlow, this is a three-platform show. You are expanding your voice across as many platforms in media in America as you possibly can, courtesy of me. So just make sure you understand that. Major, I am eternally grateful to you, <laughs> as I have for these many 20-some-odd years. Uh, I want to play you a soundbite, Larry, from uh, Scott Pelley's conversation with Bob Woodward. It's not about the pandemic part of the book, but it's about something else. And I want to get your thoughts on it on the other side. Uh, Arden, that's number three. I Do you it. think there is systematic or institutional racism in this country? Well, I think there is everywhere. I think probably less here than most places or less here than many places. Okay, but is it here in a way that it has an impact on people's lives? I think it is, and it's unfortunate, but I think it is. That's from the Woodward Conversations with the President. And I want to get your attitude economically about this, Larry, because it's a very big conversation in our country. 
Do you believe any of the structures of our country from its origins were either racist or created an atmosphere of institutional racism that economically speaking, our country still is grappling with and must change? Well, look, I, you know, the, if you go back to the framers, declaration in the constitution there were some provisions that had to be changed obviously and you know and were changed but separate from the constitution i mean you had a uh, economy in the south uh based around cotton first without the cotton gin then later with the cotton gin in which a great deal of that economy was foundationally exploitive and there are those who argue and i just want your opinion on this that that's still a legacy that flows through our economic structures now. I don't think so. I mean, I'm happy to go into some problems, some issues, and and I'm not going to, you know, there is some discrimination in this country. That's most regrettable. Uh, Do I think it's systemic? No, I don't. Because I think our system, you know, based on the laws and the uh, opportunities uh, for equal treatment and just treatment, uh, our system can be changed. And in, in our lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, with all the civil rights done in the 60s and 70s uh, and so forth, I, I think we have seen big changes. Now, we, we need more. But still, I always, you know, think about this, Major. Some people may not agree, but, you know, just a few years ago, an African-American president was elected twice. And that, that by itself speaks good volumes about this country and its system. Second point is, in those two victories, um, 80 million white votes went to Barack Obama. And again, I think that speaks good volumes about the durability and the inherent quality of our system. Now, it took a while to get the vote. I understand that. And I'm a civil rights Republican, always have been a follower of Jack Kemp, but we, you know, we've moved forward. I'm more interested in the economy part, because I feel it's it's not the cotton economy in the South. I feel the biggest challenge to underserviced areas, disadvantaged areas, if you will, is a lack of access to capital. And, you know, this is a thought that I've shared. I mentioned Jack Kemp a few moments ago. Sure. When Jack was the HUD secretary, Uh I was out of office then, but we were very dear friends. A team of us helped him uh, put together, at the time, they were called empowerment zones or entrepreneurial zones, including, by the way, the head of the Ways and Means Committee for a while, my friend, Charlie Rangel. Um, Today, we call them opportunity zones. We've set up, I don't know, 9,000 of them. But using tax incentives, we are trying hard, and we are succeeding uh, gradually, to bring more capital into these areas. And by the way, it could be you know, poor white areas, uh, as well as African-American areas, Hispanic areas, and so forth and so on. I, I just think capital is very powerful. And right. uh, you know, we want as many black shop owners, as many black entrepreneurs, uh, as many black ladies running companies as we can possibly get. So that's an area where I think the country uh, can do better and we're working very hard to do better. And I think in the first term, we got a lot of it off the ground. That's got to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And the through line, of course, 
Larry, it's not that there's a cotton economy in the South anymore. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But that uh, original economy led to Jim Crow, which led to federal legislation that kept African Americans out of many programs of the Great Depression, after, the, after World War II, redlining, access to credit was limited throughout the 60s, 70s, even through the 80s and 90s. There's litigation going on that now. That it created an atmosphere that defaulted against the aspirations economically of African Americans in this country. That's the systemic part of it. Well, and if okay. I hear you, you say, yes, that's a real thing. Yes. But there are remedies. Yes, that, that's correct. Okay. That word systemic is a tricky word. But if that's what I you're agree. referring to... There were very bad uh, legislative mistakes and executive mistakes in down through some of that years. And incidentally, as I said, as a Jack Kemp civil rights Republican, Republicans are on the side of reforming a lot of that in the 1960s when they were in the minority. But here's the point I come back to and the reason I'm an optimist, whether it's the voting rights bills or the fair housing bills or various civil rights bills, whether it's the phenomenal work done by Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, who became a distinguished justice on the Supreme Court, laws have changed. And they have changed to attempt to deal with those unfair and unjust uh, circumstances that you described. That includes you know, things we take for granted, but the integration, for example, of the armed services. That did, not, that did not come easily, but it's provided a lot of opportunities. So yes, if, if that's what you mean by systemic, I would agree. But the reason I don't like that word systemic is our system, our system of freedom and equality and free market capitalism and enter, free enterprise allows for peaceful change. And that's what we've seen. Now, at the moment, it's not peaceful. These violent protests are just awful and everybody should condemn them. But on the whole, through the ballot box, as Martin Luther King taught us, through the ballot box, changes can and have been made, major changes. We, need, we may need more, I don't deny that, but just in the narrow economic area, there are probably a lot of issues here, but the one I come back to is you know, money and capital. How can we channel it into these underserved areas? And, Heck, we're working on it, okay? It's going to take a while, but we're working on it. When we started this conversation, we talked about the president's approach on the pandemic and wanting not to create panic and create a sense of calm and confidence. Do you think that's the rhetoric he's bringing to this question of protests in the street and suburbs being endangered by Black Lives Matter? Garrett, I am not going to second-guess the president or his communication style. Uh, some people like it, some people don't. I acknowledge that. Uh, I personally think he's a very good communicator. Uh, I may not agree with every phrase. He doesn't agree with every phrase that I utter. But on the whole, uh, and, and we spend a lot of time together, and he kind of lets you know when he's not in agreement. But um, uh, on the whole, I think people understand that he's on the side of neighborhood safety. He's on the side of the police force, even if there are reforms necessary. He is a law and order man. And I think he's made his point. And I think he's helped his cause, frankly. I think it's helped him in the polls. Others may disagree. I respect that, but that's my view. I, I think Donald Trump, look, I, I've worked for Ronald Reagan, who was a great communicator. 
And I worked long time, 40 years later, for Donald Trump, who was also a great communicator. The issue on this stuff is whether you agree with them or not. And that's always the issue. So it's kind of that simple. I'm not going to second guess the president. You know, I, I, I watch maybe not all, but many of his rallies. I attend some of his rallies. I have a lot to do with the bullets that go into the uh, talking points for these rallies and so forth. You know, it just, you know me, I'm an old supply sider. He talks about cutting taxes. He talks about lowering regulations for businesses. He talks about unleashing energy. He talks about fair and reciprocal trade. I love that stuff. You know why? He's basically saying we are going to remove barriers and obstacles to prosperity and jobs. We're going to remove those obstacles. He's also saying we will reward success. We will not punish success. Those are very much in the tradition of Ronald Reagan. And by the by, very much in the tradition of John F. Kennedy. I wrote a book about this, JFK and the Reagan Revolution. This is the stuff that I just love. Economic prosperity, economic health solves an awful lot of problems, an awful lot of problems, no matter the color of your skin or where you're from or any of that. And President Trump is a growth guy. It's the reason when he asked me to come down here that I accepted. And um, that's the stuff that I think is it's going to wind up getting them reelected. That's just a forecast. Take it for what it's worth. But that's the basic Trump stuff. That and the notion of optimism and the notion of America first, which, you know, Reagan also taught us, right? We got to, you know the story. Remember George Shultz's story, the anecdote? Shultz calls the newly appointed ambassador into his office and says to the globe, he takes him to the globe and spins the globe around and says, put your finger on the country you're representing. And the newly appointed ambassador puts his or her finger on the country they're going to. And right. Schultz says, no, you put no. your finger on the United States. That's where you're <laughs> representing. And I think that Understood. view, which was a Reagan view, is a Trump view. <laughs> That's the voice of Larry Kudlow. Segment for The Takeout coming up in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to segment four of The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Larry Kudlow is our special guest. Uh, if you like the show and you're listening to it or watching it, so you must, take a listen to The Debrief. That's my new deep dive podcast. You can find it on all great podcast platforms. One topic each week. Lots of different voices. Lots of different research. Some, I would say, great journalism. So take a listen to The Debrief. 
Larry, I want to ask you about a couple of things um, that are related to this campaign and related to the economic record of this president. Uh, because uh, during the convention and at rallies, promises made, promises kept is an edict of the president's re-election message. So October 2016, he said uh, we'd have 25 million jobs under his economic program over 10 years. Before the pandemic, the net was 6.8. Is that a promise broken or a promise in pursuit? Well, we sure we're on the right track. It's perhaps pursuit. I think he, he said 10 years and, you know, at best he'll only be in for eight years. But, you know, I, I do want to say, in fairness to the president's record, uh, the unemployment rate fell before the pandemic to three and a half percent. And again, I've been around a long time and we've never seen anything like that. And that's spilled lower than what economists would call frictional unemployment. Oh, heavens. Wait, I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. All right. No, no. I understand. You mean there's always a basic nut of people yes. who are unemployed. Yes. That's We're moving. Right. right. We're I moving. beg your pardon. I'll never criticize you again. You're absolutely right. I got that. I just will say that three and a half percent and it's spilled over into every group, every cohort, uh, lowest education, various minority groups, gender, and so forth. That was a phenomenal achievement without inflation. And unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, you know, the first two months of, uh, of 2020, we were growing, according to the Atlanta Fed anyway, by better than 3%. So precisely, did he meet that standard? Maybe not. But directionally, absolutely. The path was open. And I've not given up yet. Now, the pandemic changes a lot of things. He can't be blamed for that, I don't think anyway. But give him a second term, let him more tax cuts, more deregulation. Our agenda is completely different than the other team's agenda. I think it's a growth, prosperity, health, safety, and security agenda. I think you're gonna rebuild the economy a second time. You rebuild it once, he's gonna rebuild it a second time. I, I believe you, you. You mentioned 3% growth was the projected path right. pre-pandemic. Um, during the campaign, I was there. I attended more than 75 rallies. The president was often one. He did so in October of 2016 to say 4%, 5%, possibly 6%. 2018, it was 3.18%. You were on a path to 3%. Was that over-promising or undershooting? Well, the 3% was kind of our official goal. We came pretty close to it. I know the president was gone for 4, 5, 6, and that's great fun, and that's aspirational, and I love that kind of talk because so many of my friends in the economics profession and Wall Street and whatever you know, oh, it's secular stagnation and we're doomed for this and doomed for that. I don't believe a word of it. I lived through the Reagan boom, which spilled over into Clinton. We've had great periods of the Kennedy boom and the sick. You know me, I want to take a rip at the ball. And that's the POTUS attitude. So he wants four, five, six percent. He'll give it his best shot. So part of the supply side philosophy is, and I know it well, I've listened to it for more than 25 years, um, is you grow and revenues increase. And even so, there was a revenue increase net to the federal government after the tax cut. But pre-pandemic, in a time of prosperity, as you described, Larry, with low inflation, the deficit was still running at just a clip under a trillion dollars. We've never seen that before. In a growing, prosperous economy, a trillion dollar deficit doesn't that bother you at some level? We know that it's because of the pandemic, 3.3 trillion. But even before that, it was very high, statistically and economically, meaningfully, was it not? Well, yeah. Look, as a share of GDP, I think it was around 5%. 
But you know what? I, I don't want to make that argument. I, I will say that the Congress spends too much. All right. And I think that's always the problem because, look, a lot of very smart guys. I'll use that. That was two years of a Republican Congress. It was. All right. I don't. I, I'm just making this blanket statement. I don't care which side you're on. Uh I won't necessarily call it the swamp, but it has some, sometimes a swamp-like feeling. There's just too much darn spending. Um, the president proposed a lot of spending cuts that never saw the light of day. Now, he did increase the military budget. That was very, very important. But nonetheless, we, once we clear out the pandemic business, hopefully we will, um, we've got to try to spend much less. We've got to try to grow uh, as much as possible. And, you know, guys like Larry Lindsay and Kevin Hassett and other smart guys, uh, they argued that the one and a half trillion dollar tax cut, as it was uh, priced out by the Joint Tax Committee, we actually covered that. We actually covered that by early 2020. So in that sense, in terms of revenues, yeah, the, rev the revenues covered the one and a half trillion dollars that was estimated. I think I don't believe any of these estimates because they're not dynamic, but whatever. We were gaining on it, but we, we spend too much. And, you know, maybe we have a, yours in my lifetime, post, we'll spend less. Who knows? Uh, $26.7 trillion national debt. Sustainable? Tw how much? Yes. $26.7 trillion. Okay. Is it sustainable? Right now, it's sustainable. Right this moment, because of the emergencies and we have emergency spending. We also had emergency tax cuts in the first CARES bill, not this one. I wish we had more. Um, yes, we can carry it because the bond rate, uh, the financing rate is 50, 60 basis points. And the market is hungry for U.S. debt because it's high quality. So we're okay. We're okay. Now, at this clip forever, no. And it's something we are sensitive to. But you know, as uh, Nobel Prize winner Robert Mundell often told me many years ago, as my mentor, professor, and whatnot, uh, sometimes you have to be a Keynesian demand-sider. Sometimes you have to be a supply-sider. Uh, this, this was the moment where uh, we had to be a demand-sider. We spent money. We can't do it forever. Um, but right now, it's financeable, and the economy's coming back. We have more work to do. But we're, we're okay. We'll face the deficit problem as a longer run matter. You know the president's a builder, likes to think of himself as a builder. Is lack of infrastructure a major fumble of the first four years? Well, you know, I don't know if it's a fumble. We put forward, we tried. I mean, I was in the cabinet room. Uh, a year ago. Yeah, but Larry, trying and achieving are two different things. The president would be the first one to tell you that. I'm sure he said that in meetings. Trying is not achieving. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, I will just say that when the Congress is split, Democrats, House, Republicans, and the Senate, it's very hard uh, to get some goals through. I, I don't feel like going there now and pointing fingers and whatever. Uh, there were some acrimonious bipartisan meetings and I attended in the cabinet room. One lasted about a minute and a half. The other one was a little bit longer than that. Uh, infrastructure, by the way, infrastructure is still spending out. I don't want people to, you can look at the roads everywhere. There's plenty of infrastructure, but yeah, we need a long run plan for infrastructure. We need reforms about what makes infrastructure. Bridges, roads, and tunnels are different. Uh, than subways, for example, or bridges to nowhere. We need a lot of infrastructure and we need a lot of reform.
That's the voice of Larry Kudlow. For our beloved radio audience, that's the end of this episode of The Takeout. For those of you on CBSN and our podcast platform, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. See you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, continuing our conversation with the president's top economic advisor. His name is Larry Kudlow. So, Larry, uh, this is the fun and game segment. It's a little bit lighter. Um, And we have three questions we ask every single guest. We've been doing this show for more than three and a half years. And the uh, answers fascinate our audience because they are a window into the personality behind the voice or the visage. So, in whatever order you wish to answer them, the most influential book in your life, your all-time favorite movie, or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? (laughs) Those are great. So, the most fantastic book in my life, you're probably not looking for this, but I'm going to say the Bible. I'm going to say that. No, Larry, that is, a, that, is a, that is a frequent answer and always acceptable. Well, thank you for that. Be- among a million other reasons, um, 25 years ago, my life changed for the better, and I came to faith and um, started reading the Bible and learned quite a bit from it. And I still do, uh, as does my wife. So uh, that's still my favorite, uh, my favorite book. Now, the movie... I got to The movie is really hard because I'm a movie fanatic. Absolutely movie. As am I. As am I. Um, and Netscape and Amazon sure beat the news nowadays. So I, I will. Ouch. I will, Ouch. It's, it's funny. Judy and I, my uh, uh, saintly bride, Judy and I were watching an old rerun uh, two, three nights ago. And I'm going to put it up there because we kind of agreed. Chariots of Fire. A British movie about the great yep. oh, yeah. Olympic. Won the, won the Academy Award. That's correct. I, I think it, yeah, it won the Academy Award. I think a lot of the actors won awards. Uh, the great uh, British Olympic team in 1924. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, it's, you know, good guys win in that movie, which I love. But there's stresses and strains and life is hard and determination. So, so good. I absolutely love that. What was the third one? Music. Oh, uh, well, look, I'm, you know, I don't know what you call it, pop music, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, the old golden standards. I would put Roy Orbison in there. I don't know if he fits exactly, but I love Roy Orbison. When I'm in the mood, I love country music, too. But I kind of like the Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra t- type stuff. Um, sometimes they play specials so, on PBS. Since you mentioned the chairman of the board, I recently came across an album uh, cut, I believe, in 1965, Frank Sinatra Live at the Sands, celebrating his 50th birthday. Yeah. If you haven't heard that music, if you haven't heard that album, I urge you to get it. If you're a Sinatra fan, it is sensational. It is sensational. I have heard it. You remind me, I'm going to go for it again. In Reagan's inaugural in 1985, Major, uh, Frank Sinatra ran the most wonderful, wonderful show. Um, he dedicated it to Nancy Reagan. They were great pals. He did most of the singing, and it was remarkable. It is on tape. Somebody should get a hold of it. And by the way, let me add one more. Roy Orbison's Black and White. It was one of the last concerts he did. He did it in a small restaurant room. 
Roy Orbison's uh, Black and White. Go listen to it. He has a voice like a dove. So since you mentioned it, Larry, I want to give you a chance to talk about this because I know it's a very important part of your life, of the crisis you went through 25 years ago. Um, it's meaningful to you. It's been part of your life in Washington, but many in my audience might not know anything about it. Well, look, uh, it's funny. We just spoke about this. Not funny, but um, the First Lady, Melania Trump, did a wonderful roundtable on uh, alcohol and drug abuse and recovery. I was a hopeless abuser of alcohol and drugs uh, 25 years ago and tried for years to get sober and failed and suffered enormous consequences as my peers and other friends uh, from the fellowships uh, also suffered. And um, I went away uh, for five months, long-term care to a wonderful place in Northern Minnesota and had a chance to change a lot of things, to read about it, think about it, talk about it. And down through the years, I, to this day, I still attend 12-step groups. But I say often, I came to faith, and I realized that there's a power greater than myself, uh, and that my will has to be curbed. My will has to be curbed. And if I'm going to stay sober and succeed and be productive, I have to go to other people, friends, sober friends, and ask them for advice, which I do all the time. And I may not like what they say, but I have to deal with it and follow it. That's been a great help to me uh, down through the years. Um, I think people can recover. I know it's hard. Uh, I urge anybody who's listening to double or triple up on recovery. Um, being drunk or drugged up is no good, and it's no fun, and it'll kill you. And did you, if you come around, did you, if you come around and stay with it, miracle will happen, and you will be productive. And Major, I said this at this forum, and it was it was on tape. Um, there is no way. Uh, I mean, this job is the uh, peak of my professional life. It's the greatest job for my professional life. There is no way that I would be coming to you today in the White House or have this position or been asked by uh, the president or the first lady. There's no way if I weren't sober and clean for a long time. There is no way. And I wouldn't have deserved it because I was unemployable 25 years ago. So it might have been the toughest part of my life, Major, but it may have been the most important part of my life and maybe the best part of my life. Change. I had to have change. And I hope I learned day at a time. It's working. So two questions on that before I let you go. Uh, at that time, did you think you were the highest power in your life? And on the other side of recovery, did you see the world anew? Um, the answer to both of those is yes. You know, I, I made decisions selfishly and riotously with very bad consequences. And so I learned, never make a decision alone. And my higher power, by the way, I, I do worship God. Um, but my higher power includes friends of mine in the 12-step program who have been sober a long time, who give me good advice, who give me very good advice. And um, I forget the second part of your question. Do you, did you see the world anew? I did. I do. Absolutely. Completely differently. 
What do you see that you missed before? Well, I see, for one thing, I see the importance of good decisions. You know, we all have choices in life. And I see the importance of making good choices with the help of others. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the 12-step program, Fellowship, it's a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, we're all the same. Drunks, are, I don't care where you're from, color your skin, what kind of job, what kind of income you make. There is nothing but equality in the meeting rooms of uh, AA. Nothing but equality. And you'd be surprised, I'm surprised, at the sort of people that I've helped and sponsored and the sort of people that have helped me and sponsored. There's a great lesson in life, and I've tried to carry that uh, wherever I go. I'm not perfect, Major. I am not perfect. But the one thing I have done perfectly is managed to stay sober. And um, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. The greatest thing that ever happened to me. I know many in recovery. Uh, I wish you all the best. I congratulate you. I know that is of uh, only slight importance, but I know a little bit about the journey. I respect it. I admire it. And I thank you for sharing it. Thank you, Major. Appreciate it very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Larry. Stay tuned, folks, for The Takeout next week. But Larry Kudlow, we bid him farewell, and thank you very much, sir. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.